A pleasure to welcome Gloria Dickey to the program. Gloria is a freelance journalist who has written for the New York Times and National Geographic, and most recently for The Walrus, a new piece entitled, China Wants to Invest in the Arctic. Why doesn't Canada? Gloria Dickey joining us from Vancouver Island. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Tell us what brought you to this story, Gloria, please. Yeah, so I've been reporting on the Arctic for a while, and I kind of noticed um, an increase um, interest from from China, as did many others in the past decade or so. Um, you know, when I was traveling the Arctic, obviously you saw you know more tourists from from China, um, but also just a greater interest in the resources and the transportation routes uh, that are there. And so I kind of wanted to look at um, how how Canada was responding to this because it was something that had kind of started out um, in Russia and in the European Arctic. Um, and was more slow to, to, to move over here. Let me quote from your, your article. It's a good one, too, by the way. I enjoyed it. Canada has spent decades ignoring its Arctic potential, and as a result, the region's economy lags far behind that of most other northern regions around the world. Evidently, the Canadian Arctic has not proved such a blind spot for China. They love our rocks and trees, Gloria. <laughs> They've been over here for decades uh, at, uh, acquiring as much and as as many as they possibly can, and the Arctic is an enormous potential reserve. Uh, and so China is has huge designs on the Arctic. Stephen Harper tried to tell us this 10 years ago. Nobody paid any attention to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that being, that's being exacerbated too, right? As, as climate change opens up the Arctic and makes a lot of that extraction much more feasible than, you know, even two decades ago, it's, it's happening at a much faster pace now, for sure. Let's talk about this road, because there was a road. Mark Garneau has moved on. He's now the foreign affairs minister, but he was a pretty good transportation minister. And last year, he announced uh, several million dollars in federal funding towards the building of a road and eventually a port, which would open up uh, another portion of the Arctic in, in Nunavut. Talk to us a little bit about the road and, and what it represents, because there's a lot of money attached and, and the Canadian commitment isn't very deep on the cash right. side. But let's talk about the road itself that's important right so yeah there's a company that's called uh, mmg limited which is a multinational uh, chinese mining corporation um, and they have a bunch of uh, claims up in the izak lake corridor uh, of, of minerals but they haven't really been able to get in there and get get that out easily um, and so they actually looked at building a road i think back in early 2010s late 2000s uh, and kind of deemed that it wouldn't be feasible um and some academics say, you know, essentially they were just waiting for Canada to come in and pick up the shovel here to, to cover those costs for them. And so the Canadian government has kind of made a modest investment at creating a road network uh, in this area that would make it more easier for companies to get in there and extract things and draw investment um, from perhaps outside Canada and within Canada to this region. Um, and, you know, some people are saying that this should really be paid for by China if, if it's going to benefit them. It's not really benefiting the local communities all that much. Well, Gloria, we do know that China has an incredible uh, accomplished degree of accomplishment with respect to lobbying the Canadian government, particularly the Justin Trudeau government, which seems to be, as as many other liberal regimes before it, kindly disposed to look favorably upon just about everything offered up or proposed by China. So when this road was announced, I believe it was last year in 2019, no, two years ago now, <laughs> in 2019 by Garneau, uh, uh, talk to us about the numbers. This is where it gets a little silly because the road is worth what? A billion and a half and Canada's into, in for 20 million, something like that? 
Right. Yeah. They're not making a huge investment yet. It's kind of perhaps to signal interest in that region or perhaps at the time was even to spur more investment, um, you know, perhaps from China by saying, look, we're going to make this region more accessible. Right. Um, I think that the relationship uh, between the Trudeau government and China, uh, as well as the rest of the world, perhaps, has deteriorated quite a bit uh, since 2019. And we are starting to see some fault lines um, and uh, shifts in terms of whether or not China's go- or Canada is going to be quite as open to China in the future. Well, it's about time, wouldn't you say? Uh, on the other hand, we're looking at a government that is going to justify spending some money. It's not a, a huge amount, especially given the the benefit programs that are uh, also uh, currently at play. But nonetheless, they're going to spend some money to open up this portion of the Arctic. And of course, the 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 residents, the local people who live in the communities affected by this new access road are, are just thrilled. They're just absolutely tickled. They don't care who's paying for it. Right. I mean, it, it might not benefit local communities, but they are saying, you know, whether or not that investment comes from Canada or China, we, we don't really care. If, if Canada's not going to pony up, we welcome outside investment. Um, a lot of the Inuit associations will say that. We've seen similar sentiment from Inuit groups in Greenland. Yep. That, you know, they, they don't really care who's, who's bringing development to the north, provided it's getting there. And so uh, so uh, uh, lots of cooperation and lots of positive on the ground feedback for anyone who wants to venture into that area and open it up. Right, exactly. So uh, in terms of sovereignty, however, this uh, this uh, any red flags being raised by uh, anyone other than cynics like me? Right. Well, we, we've seen local government officials uh, worry about the idea of China increasing its stake, uh, you know, in, in our in our in our Arctic and when Canada does not have as much of a strong presence there, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of passing local legislation or trying to, you know, keep up environmental monitoring efforts on what's happening there. They don't want to feel that pressure, you know, from China, which is a superpower kind of affecting, you know, perhaps even local politics um, as time passes. So there's definitely concern about, you know, kind of having to perhaps kowtow and make sure that they don't anger China um, in terms of what they're doing there. Right. Well, of course, and, and this is all subject to negotiations. Do you have any concept at all, Gloria, of the timeline attached to all of this? The announcement came in the summer of 2019 from then Transport Minister Garneau. I don't imagine there's been a lot of construction activity since. What, what do you understand the timeline of this new access road to be? Right. I mean, they're, they're almost kind of in the exploratory stage at, at this point. I think a lot of more funding is going to have to come forward. I imagine that not much has been done due to the pandemic mm-hmm. over the past year or so. Um, so it's definitely more of a, a long game. And I think that also kind of adheres to, to China's goals as well, because they are very much known as wanting to play the long game in terms of resource acquisition around the world um, and, you know, and transportation routes around the world. And of course, and when you take a look at that long game from a Beijing perspective, money is simply no object, is it? <laughs> it doesn't seem to be that way. I mean, China is one, one of the only developed countries that saw their that saw their economy grow in 2020. So they're definitely in a better position than than we are right now. Gloria Dickey's in Victoria this morning. Don't imagine it's a heck of a lot warmer there. Uh, Gloria is a freelance writer, writes for The Walrus, The New York Times, National Geographic, The Atlantic, and so on, and most recently wrote a piece for The Walrus uh, about China. The question asked is, China wants to invest in the Arctic. Why doesn't Canada? And Gloria, you go on to mention in the story, 40% of Canada is in the Arctic, something most Canadians never even think of. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually one of the least defended territories on Earth. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes it's easy to think that because so much of our area, you know, is that far north, we kind of forget about it. But if you think about Russia, you know, they've got a huge swath of the Arctic as well. And, and that's not the case for Russia. Indeed. So and uh, the undefended part is a very important aspect of all of this conversation. And this goes back again to Harper. Uh, I remember when Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, he would take some time every year. He would take a canoe trip and go way, way up above the tree line and and, uh, quite fond of that. And then that fascination with the far north went away for several decades and was revived by, of all people, Stephen Harper, who seemed to share that fascination with that part of the country and who, in fact, established a very limited, but nonetheless, thin defensive line. The Rangers, of course, are are up there, and that's a part of a product of Stephen Harper's administration. But he was also, uh, uh, again, trying to bring our attention to the fact that it's just there, because so many of us don't think about it ever. True? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, And I think right now, especially, we are seeing uh, an increase militarization of of the Arctic, not so much in Canada, but uh, certainly, you know, in Europe, there's a lot more NATO exercises happening and uh, absolutely in Russia. So now we're talking about, and, and we know that there is currently a moratorium on oil and gas drilling and exploration. That's a joint moratorium between Canada and the United States, which expires, I believe, is it this year or next year, Gloria? I think it's this year. Okay. So, but up until the expiry date of, of the, the arrangement, uh, for the moment at least, there are there is no plan or are no plans for uh, oil exploration or gas exploration. However, we also know that the, uh, the Arctic, the Canadian far north, is an absolute treasure trove of minerals. So China has grand designs on our rocks. Uh, no trees, so just rocks this time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But and, and to the point when this isn't something we don't understand, we don't even think about. They're developing a fleet of icebreakers to take mm-hmm. stuff from the far north back to where it can be processed in China. Yeah, China's actually kind of leading the global charge in, in terms of icebreaker construction. They have more icebreakers than most Arctic nations, especially the really heavy-duty ones, uh, which kind of gives insight as to their as to their long-term goals in the north to be constructing that many ships. Exactly. If they're committing those kinds of dollars to uh, literally a fleet, I mean, does Canada, have, we have a couple of icebreakers. I mean, I'm not, not diminishing the fact that we are an Arctic country. We do have access, but not, not and, and certainly no plans on the drawing board to even try to match what the Chinese are, not only have already, but what they plan to build, Gloria. That's the key. Right. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, academics are looking at what will happen with the Northwest Passage in the decades to come right. as well, because there are some sovereignty disputes there. Uh, China hasn't taken a stance on whether or not they recognize Canadian sovereignty, and many academics think that that's strategic. Well, and I suppose what's what's going to be difficult down here is to convince or to connect the dots, perhaps, be, be behind or between what the Chinese policy is regarding Hong Kong and other matters that we spend a lot of time on on this program, for example, talking about Hong Kong and its many supporters here in Canada. And so we have that whole political thing going on with the two Michaels and the Meng Wanzhou trial going on and at the same time there's this whole other tableau a thousand or more kilometers north playing out that no one is even aware of 
Right. I, I think that that is definitely changing, especially what we've seen in the past month. Um, back in May, China actually had entered a bid on the Doris North gold mine in Hope Bay, Nunavut. Um, and everyone kind of thought that, that would go through with, with no problem. Um, it's kind of a rubber stamping process. Mm-hmm. And what we actually saw in December was that the Canadian government rejected their That's bid, right. uh, citing national security concerns. And that was a shocker to a lot of people who expected, again, the government to basically roll over and, and do uh, as they were asked to do. And whether uh, the, the national security aspect of, I think that was perhaps the most surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'd actually been working on this story for a couple of years, um, and this had gone to print a few weeks before that, that bid was rejected. And that was quite surprising to me, and I think anyone else following this this process that Canada would actually step up and pay attention. So what do you think is next then? If Canada has all of a sudden decided to grow a spine uh, and and stand up for itself uh, and, and uh, perhaps uh, deal with this uh, more like two adults in the room, how do you see this going forward then? Definitely I think we're going to see more protectionist policies from Canada, I think the bigger question for the people living in the North is, will Canada step in instead? And that remains to be seen, right? We've seen, you know, kind of, um, you know, ceremonious signaling of giving some money for the road projects, but we haven't really seen Canada fully step up yet. So I think, you know, perhaps it's fine for Canada to be more protectionist about those resources, uh, provided that they themselves are are giving money to Northern communities and and helping facilitate uh, some more development there. Yeah, interesting. By the way, just uh, as an aside, uh, back to the moratorium on oil and gas exploration and drilling. The Trump administration had tried to rescind some of those arrangements, particularly in the Alaska, in some of the refuges there. Uh, Fortunately, that era is over. Uh, In terms of Canada-U.S. relations going forward, especially in a situation where they, they kind of end up side by side against China, that's not a bad thing either, is it? No, and I think that's another thing to think of, too, is that, you know, because the tensions and the relationship between the U.S. and China is so bad right now, uh, because we're neighbors, you know, there with Alaska, we really don't necessarily want to be angering um, the U.S. either by, by working with China in the Arctic. That's what some people have said. Well, and, and I think, though, the certainly the new regime uh, in Washington is going to be a lot more um, philosophically aligned with Canada's uh, uh, desires for outcomes in the area. In other words, development, but not at any cost. Right, exactly. I think that, I mean, the environmental protection of the Arctic is, of course, a, a huge topic of discussion right now. And, and again, you know, anyone who's investing in this area has to adhere to very strict um, environmental protocols. Right. Uh, but at the same time, only so much can can really be done with, you know, mining or oil and gas drilling. It, it does have a, you know, environmental degrading effect. Gloria, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the time that you've spent up there. And again, back to the people who live there, those Canadians, the Inuit communities uh, in the far, far north. Uh, And you mentioned Greenland, uh, which is uh, also uh, home to many Inuit communities. And in terms of China, seeing China as their road, their possible dot connector to literally the rest of planet Earth, in Greenland, uh, the communities have decided to to go to work to, to do business with China and ignore Copenhagen. Green Mark, Greenland belongs to Denmark, and the locals in Greenland have said, enough with you, Copenhagen. We're going to take this one on of ours, ourselves and go straight across and start dealing with China. Uh, it, it, the Canadian communities that you've visited and the residents that you've spoken to appear to be similarly aligned whatever it takes to open this part of the world up we're okay with it 
Right. I mean, I've mostly worked in, in the European Arctic, but certainly those I've spoken to, you know, they're kind of saying we want to have power over our own futures. We want to be autonomous. And if that, you know, if that means dealing with Ottawa, we'll do it. But if that means dealing with China, we, we don't really see an issue with that. It gives us, um, you know, jurisdiction over our own destinies here. Is this uh, in any way going to be Trudeau wants an election this year, whether or not he's going to call one remains to be seen, but he's positively slavering to get underway with it. Could this in any way become an election issue or is it still just too darn far away, Gloria? It's hard to say. I mean, I think people thought that, that China, for example, would be an election issue last time around, and there, it wasn't really to the degree that we would expect. Yeah. Um, I would still say that the Arctic is perhaps a little... Um, immature in terms of whether or not that will that will really be a central focus i think obviously the pandemic is going to be perhaps the biggest issue um and u.s relations i think that most likely in the the next election we'll kind of see the arctic uh relegated to the back once again but maybe within you know 10 years as as the great meltdown really speeds up um that will that will change well it's a fascinating article i would commend it to our listeners it's available in in the walrus or at the walrus.ca uh, it's entitled china wants to invest in the arctic why doesn't canada while canada ignores the north's economic potential china is poised to make inroads and on and on it goes great piece from gloria dickey in the walrus and nice illustrations too by the way from uh, your friend uh, gloria thanks for getting up early to do this it's absolutely critical information it's something we don't think about very often but on a, on a, a sub-zero saturday morning when it's really arctic like uh, outside the front door it's a little easier to do so we thank you for your timing and your wonderful Thanks. article. Thanks so much for having me. Stay Ex- warm out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we'll do this again. Let's, let's keep an eye on this file, Gloria, and touch base as, as we go forward, okay? Great. Thank you. Uh, that's Gloria Dickey from thewalrus.ca. Check it out. It's always a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. She is British Columbia's seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie, joins us now. Isabel, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. And the news uh, regarding you, that, and it was so delighted to have you back with us this morning, because the news this week, uh, not anything to do with governors general or federal politics, having everything to do with a review that you have been commissioned to conduct regarding what happened uh, during the outbreak in BC's long-term care homes. Tell us more about your mandate, Isabel, please. Well, what my office is going to be looking at, Sterling, is over the span of the pandemic, so from the beginning back in March and un, until we're through this pandemic, what happened in our long-term care homes mm-hmm. in British Columbia? We know that wave two of this virus looked very, very different in BC than wave one, much more so than other provinces who had very horrific wave ones. We were very, or fairly, Uh, successful in wave one in containing the virus overall within the community and in relatively um, containing it within our long-term care sector. We Mm -hmm. did have outbreaks. uh, We did have some deaths, unfortunately, but we had much more of that in wave two than in wave one. So what we want to understand is not just why was it uh, more serious in wave two. Part of that is going to be linked inevitably to we just had more cases of COVID. Right. But looking particularly at the lower mainland where the community spread was effectively the same, why did some care homes experience an outbreak, some multiple outbreaks? Why did other care homes not experience outbreaks? 
And why did some care homes that experienced outbreaks contain the outbreak to one or two cases and others had outbreaks that that got out of control? We need to really look at at the details and, and see what differences, if any, there were between the design of those care homes, the staffing of those care homes, the practices around PPE, the practices around um, what happened when the outbreak was declared, Mm -hmm. the practices around testing. Were there any differences that led to a greater probability that they would experience an outbreak or a greater probability that that outbreak would spread? I think we need to understand and know that uh, so that when we face our next pandemic or if for whatever reason uh, there's a resurgence of this, um, that we're better prepared and understand. Indeed. And the operative word there in that long explanation is next, because there's also going to have to be some consideration, I would think, Isabel, of lessons learned, because we were lucky. And a lucky is an odd word to use. We were uh, better off than some other jurisdictions during that first wave and Dr. Henry and flattened the curve. And we did a pretty good job. And hopefully during that first wave process, we learned some lessons that could have been applied and were when the second wave hit, not equally applied as the outcomes were not equal across the province. So there is that matter of lessons learned from the first uh, round that may or not uh, may have been equally applied for the second, right? Yes, we need, don't forget, British Columbia had the first care home outbreak in Canada. Yes. And we had the first death in Canada in that care home. And we did learn uh, a tremendous amount with the outbreak at Lynn Valley, which was horrific, and applied some of those learnings, and it led to a number of actions on the part of the government back in Wave 1. The questions that we need to to have answers to is, in Wave 2, to what degree were those measures effective in reducing the possibility that Wave 2 could have been even more Um, prolific than it was in terms of care home outbreaks. And what new and emerging either evidence or technology did we have in wave two that we could have applied? And to what extent were some of the assumptions of measures we took, for example, um, uh, PPE usage uh, and screening of staff, to what degree was was that did that become less effective over time, the proverbial COVID fatigue uh, that set in by the time we were experiencing the second wave? These are things we need to, to better understand, given the magnitude of long-term care home outbreaks, particularly in the Lower Mainland. Well, yeah, and, and uh, it, as you said, the first uh, confirmed death in Canada was here uh, in, in British Columbia on the North Shore at the Lynn Valley Care Centre. And the uh, since then, there have been more than 1,000 deaths in B.C., and more than 60% of those have been in seniors in care. So con- clearly, there's, there's, there's work to be done. Who, From whom did you receive the mandate? Was it the Ministry of Health? Which, uh, which government agency said, is we need you to take a good long look at this. Well, this is a mandate under the legislation for the Office of the Seniors Advocate. Ah, okay. We, we, we both determine what we want to and need to uh, review and look at. And the, the legislation does also allow uh, the minister to ask our office to review something. This review um, has resulted from basically what we were seeing in the second wave, that 
we really do need to understand what has happened here. Uh, Little Mountain being the, the the most recent of our of and currently the most serious outbreak, and let's hope that it doesn't get eclipsed by another outbreak. But we're not finished yet. Mm-hmm. We are about probably eight weeks away from being fairly confident we should not be seeing new outbreaks in long-term care. So, and we still are seeing some, although it's it's reduced significantly. And, and that's good news. Um, one of the things that we've, we've launched well um, is our vaccination rollout plan. Right. Uh, the more details were announced by the government yesterday. It, it is a good and solid plan. And more particularly, the government has shared with the public what the plan is. Uh, we know that there's been some disruption to the supply chain for right. vaccine, but that's not going to impact long-term care. We are going to be able to meet our targets to have long-term care, both residents and staff vaccinated. We also know, because I, I think uh, almost all care homes have had the first uh, dose of vaccine administered and some are, are close to their second dose, that the concern around what we would call vaccine hesitancy has not materialized to the degree there were fears of. So people were talking about, oh, care staff won't get vaccinated. That has not been the experience. Good. Overwhelmingly, staff are are uh, getting vaccinated and, and, and we are fairly confident that we're going to reach the level of staff vaccination that we're going to need to give that uh, immunity protection. So, you know, that's very good news uh, in terms of going forward within our long-term care sector. Joined on the line by BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie, who is about to conduct a review of uh, long-term care outbreaks across our province. And one of the things that you and I have talked about, it, Isabel, it's always great to have you on the program. One of the things that you and I have talked about on a few occasions is testing, rapid testing for staff, for residents, for visitors alike. What's uh, what, uh, Obviously, this will be included in your review. What's the status of testing? in care homes this weekend? Well, currently, for the most part, our testing strategy is still based on we don't routinely test care staff unless they start to display symptoms and then they're sent for what's called the PCR test, the the nasal pharyngeal swab that is done by uh, local health and so on. There are a few care homes. I, I'm not sure of the exact number at the moment. I, I don't think it's more than a handful where there's a uh, pilot study around the use of rapid testing. And I think there are some care homes, some private care homes that are doing rapid testing on their own. Rapid testing is using, well, there's actually a molecular-based one, but the, the one we have the most of in BC, the PanBio, is an antigen test. And so it allows you to test staff on the spot. Mm-hmm. And if uh, they're highly infectious with COVID-19 and they're not showing any symptoms, because if they're showing symptoms, they either would not have come to work or they're going to answer the questions about symptoms and be sent for a test. Sure. Um, it, can, it can detect if you have um, an active uh, COVID-19 um, infection. And I think one of the things that has made the rapid testing a much more user-friendly 
um, testing strategy has been the Health Canada approval of just what we call a nasal swab versus Mm -hmm. a nasal pharyngeal swab which uh, eliminates the need to, you can, you can actually do your own nasal swab. You don't uh, need a healthcare professional to, do, um, to, to take the swab the right. way you do with an NP swab. So uh, my hope is that we will continue uh, to see an expansion of rapid testing. Even with the vaccine rollout, we know that there are going to be some care staff. Um, it might be around 20%. We're not quite sure yet who will not have received the vaccine for a whole host of reasons. Some will be, they don't want it, but others, there could be um, actual reasons why they can't take that vaccine at that moment in time. We still want to test those staff uh, coming into the care home because even though we'll have vaccinated the residents and we will have vaccinated um, the other care staff, the uh, this is a very, very serious virus when introduced into a care home. So Indeed. we want to do every layer of protection to make sure it doesn't get in. So there is still going to be that role to play for rapid testing uh, in the weeks and months ahead until we eradicate um, or, or get through this pandemic um, uh, with COVID-19. So Health Canada has come out with uh, originally the guidelines back in, I think it was October, November, where the guidelines said that it could be used for testing asymptomatic people in high-risk environments for screening, not testing. And I think that's the other thing. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion about it's not as effective as the PCR. That's actually true. Um, But there's a difference between using it as a screening tool and using it as a diagnostic tool. Exactly, yes. And And I think that that's certainly what I've been advocating is its efficacy as a screening tool. Sure. Because you're not compare you're not comparing it to the PCR test with its with its higher specificity and sensitivity, you're comparing it to no test, um, and so just as with the vaccine, we're better off with you know more people getting the first dose, even though there's a lower um, rate of effectiveness than two doses, it's still pretty high. So too are we better off screening with a test that is not as reliable as the PCR test but it's better than no test when you think of it from a screening perspective. Absolutely. So, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by this, this, this news, this development, the fact that, you, because this has been a major, a major uh, factor for you as well. Cars today gather enormous amounts of data about the vehicle and its driver, including important maintenance and repair information. This valuable data helps drivers make smarter decisions about how to repair and maintain their cars. Most new cars are equipped with systems that wirelessly transmit this data. So, who has access to the data your car collects? Well, guess what? It's not you. And the folks at the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia have to gather to, together to bring this to your attention because you have perhaps don't even know about it. They have a new campaign called Your Car, Your Data, Your Choice. Adrian Scoville is back with us from the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia. Adrian, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Nice it, to be back. Well, it's good to have you with us on this uh, frosty uh, Saturday morning, minus four outside the radio station. What part of town are you in? Well, it, I'm at the part of town that can see where that major fire was overnight. Oh, um, b- oh Boundary and Grandview, that area. No, actually, the one in Langley. Oh, um, oh okay. It, it, we were woken up at it just after four in the morning. There were three loud explosions. Uh, one was so big, it actually shook our house. Holy smokes. Um, 
and I've got, yeah, smokes is the word. Um, it was, uh, it was actually a concrete manufacturing place or a concrete yard. The, um, and I have video of it. It's, uh, you can see it from, from where sort of high on the hill looking down, you can see straight down into it. And, um, all the roads were blocked in flames, maybe 30 plus feet into the air. Um, Wow, it, it was it was one of the largest I've ever seen, and I've seen some pretty big ones. Indeed, so. well, our our friends in the newsroom at Global would be very happy to have a look at that video. Should you decide they, to share it with us, I'm sure they'd be very much appreciated. They've already got it. We oh, good it stuff. Well, thanks, Adrian. We appreciate that. Now let's talk about this there's, petition there's you've got going. Hand, yeah, this this is your car, your data, your choice. The intro that I read was from a website that you've established to surround uh, the petition, and it's. Uh, the uh, change.org uh, and it's where you go to sign the petition but that information uh, is 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 really brand new to people especially if you bought a new car and it's got all the latest whiz bang gizmos and gadgets and so on you're you're just the happiest person in the world uh, unaware of the fact that perhaps all of the information your car is programmed to gather and retain is in fact being sent to where to the original manufacturer of the vehicle, and they have control over that data. Uh, the, the interesting parts, and, and the, the reason I think the name of the campaign is so interesting, is it is your car. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, it's your data. So really, it should be your choice as to who has access to that data and how it's used. Well, as, as, especially, Adrian, at today's new car prices. I mean, these you don't come by these toys, regardless of what make or model you buy, without spending a huge whacking amount of money. And the very least you should expect in exchange for that, aside from the keys to this new vehicle, is the access to the information the vehicle generates. Absolutely. And and I would say that the, the information the vehicle generates is, is very good information. Sure. It, is, it is, is information that you would want, that the uh, manu- manufacturers may want to improve the vehicle performance, um, and certainly something you, you would want to have access to. But you'd want to have a choice when you do that as to do you or don't you want to share that information with the manufacturer. Uh, you know, we have concerns over the data in our computers and on our cell phones sure. and various other things. And, and, and at least you have an option, opt-out button. There is no opt-out button. Um, and the amount of information that can gather, it, it could gather information about your driving habits. In, in addition to the things that, that tell the, the, the uh, manufacturer, et cetera, how to repair and improve the vehicle, mm-hmm. um, it does actually, uh, it has the capability of recording exactly how you're driving, for instance. Right. Um, and can gather all kinds of information about you um, that you may not want to share at all. So there's um, the privacy aspect of it all, but there's also an even more practical angle to this, and that's something going wrong. Now, we just bought a new yeah. car. We're not supposed to have anything go wrong, but gosh darn it, you know, Adrian, sometimes they just do anyway. Uh, and it's not even the lemon syndrome. Sometimes you just have problems. So you want to go to somewhere to get your car fixed, and you have a favorite mechanic. And that that shop has all the latest uh, computer hookups. They can connect with... Uh, and plug in their computers into pretty much any vehicle that comes into their shop. And yet, if you want to take your new car to your favorite mechanic to have it worked on, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen because the information that your car is generating cannot be picked up by your favorite mechanic at your favorite shop. Can it? Correct. Yes. Why? And um, we got to remember. Yes, you know things can go wrong with a new vehicle, but. 
that things can go wrong with your 10 year old vehicle that's got the same problems, the same issues. They, they won't release the information. Right. Um, now, this is a this is beyond the plugging in that you're referring to. Um, this is actually what's referred to as telematics, which means your vehicle can communicate with the manufacturer all the time. Mm-hmm. So so it's not just when you want to communicate. Um, it's when the vehicle feels like communicating um, and it will send that vehicle, that information to the original manufacturer wirelessly if they so choose. Right. Um, so. The you there are a number of issues. One is you, the privacy issue. Yep. Um, and number two is yes, you're right. You will have no choice but for who to take your vehicle to. And we've seen already there the uh, Tesla, for instance, will not sell parts to anybody outside of their authorized network. Period. Right. So even if you've got the information, they won't sell you the parts. Um, so this is going to become a very concerning thing for for people throughout British Columbia. Um, if you own a vehicle or you insure a vehicle, this is going to be a concern because cost of repairs will go up, which means cost of insurance will go up because any kind of repairs that then involved ICBC and require a download of information, which is going to be nearly all of them now, mm-hmm. computers have to be reset even after a collision, yep. is going to add a great deal of money to the cost of repairing the vehicle. Um, so. It's very concerning for consumers um, because they they don't have the choice, as you say, to go to their favorite mechanic they trusted for a long time. They can only go back to select uh, facilities. And the the cost of repairs will escalate, as will the cost of insurance. Right. So this petition, uh, your car, your data, your choice, asks what of whom, Adrian? uh, Well, the, the petition is asking for the federal government... Um, to pass legislation requiring that the original equipment manufacturers allow access to that internal information. So put simply, that's what it is. So it would be a federal law, so it would be applied uh, equally in every corner of the country, uh, and you, the owner of the car, should have as much access to the data your car produces as the owner or of the original, as the original manufacturer is receiving. Yes. Uh, put very simply, yes. Okay. And, they, and, and, and where, where do people listening to us right now go uh, who are saying that, well, of, of course, it makes perfect sense. And uh, uh, some of us are, are more than a little surprised there isn't already this uh, legislation in place. So uh, in order to get on side and uh, support you, where do they go? Well, the best place, the easiest place to find it is actually to go to the ARA's website, which we talked about before. ARA dot bc.ca and right at the top of the page right when you open it up there will be a link to the petition um, and when you go online to sign the petition just make sure you're signing the canadian one because there's an if you go and you sort of search it you may end up on the american version of exactly the same program because this is this is north america wide right. in fact it is really worthwhile uh, wor- worldwide there is, by the way, a little bit of a misconception. There is a partial voluntary agreement, which our association put in place in British Columbia back in 2009, um, that gives access that you were referring to when you plug something you know, into a car and get some information. That is largely what we negotiated. Right. But this new model that we're getting um, from the manufacturers is based on this telematics, as I was referring to, yeah. which is locking down information. 
So we will no longer be have that ability to to get the full information. All the petition information, I'm looking at it right now. It's right there, dead center on the homepage of the Automotive Retailers Association website. The address again is ara.bc.ca, and you can jump in and sign the petition. Adrian Scoville, thanks for this. It's very important information. We appreciate your coming back and and, uh, warning us, waving that red flag about this uh, information lockdown by the car manufacturers. We'll uh, check the progress of the petition in a few weeks. Yeah, we're just over 9,000, where I think we'll pick up 10,000 this week, especially after listening to you. I think that might go, we we could double that, I think. Well, here's hoping something good happens. Adrian, thanks for this, as always, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for your time. Have a good day. You too. From Langley, the scene of the fire, as it turns out, the CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia, there's Adrian Scoville. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.